0: the amazing grace of God, as that hymn, you know, we just sung, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. God's grace. We're going to be going to here in just a minute to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. We're going to be going there. So if you want to Get your Bibles and start turning there. We're going to be going there to, once again, I'll repeat it, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. And go there and just stay there because what matters most is what the Bible says. That's what matters more than anything I say. Anything else on a Sunday morning is what the Word of God says. So stay there, park there in your Bibles, get your pen out and maybe underline or mark it up as we talk about them. But by way of introducing that, pa- that, that this, this passage, imagine if I was preaching this passage, this sermon, in a straitjacket right now. I read about a pastor who did that, and I considered it, but I thought, but if I put a straitjacket on, I would have to have somebody help me get it off <laughs> because I'm not Houdini. So let's just use our imagination here and imagine. If I were to preach this sermon with a straitjacket, that, that would illustrate our tendency to return over and over again to the constraints and strictures of the law instead of enjoying the fact that we are free to enjoy the new life God gave us. The point is not the straitjacket. The point is to remember the illustration. Our tendency, and we do it, you do it, you and I, we all do it, is to go over and over again back to the constraints and the strictures of the law instead of enjoying the fact that we are free to enjoy the new life in Jesus. And that's, I think, one thing Galatians and really Romans and a lot of the New Testament is all about. We are free to enjoy the new life Jesus gives us. Notice that Jesus gives us. The new life Jesus gifts us with. It's a gift. It's free. You can't earn it. might come back to that in a little bit. It's not that the law did not have a purpose and does not have a purpose. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But, you know, in the Old Testament, they had a civil law. Civil is for civilization, you know. God was something about a Jewish nation state. They had a ceremonial or we could call it religious law. And they had a moral law. And we're still to follow the best we can the moral law. But our salvation does not rest on it. We don't lose our salvation. And when we fail, we're saved by grace, the grace of Jesus. We could not keep the law. And that's why we needed our Savior. That's why we needed Jesus to go to the cross. If we could keep the law, totally, totally, entirely, completely keep the law, Jesus did not have, would not have had to go to the cross. He went to the cross because he was the only one who could keep the law. He died in our place. So we have this amazing grace of Jesus. And we limit ourselves by thinking we are saved by keeping the law. We limit our ability to rely on the Holy Spirit. We limit our ability to rely on the Holy Spirit. We end up literally tying our hands because we are living on our own strength and not the strength of God. Whose strength are you living the Christian life based on? Whose strength are we living the Christian life on? On our own? We can't do that. We need to walk by the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us empower us to live the Christian life. Think more about grace. More about grace. I heard about or read about a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. She was expected to clean her room every day as part of the family. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it. And she saw it as a way she would earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her, and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by her life in the orphanage. Since she was in an orphanage, she applied and fixated on cleaning her room in order to earn her family's love. Thus, every morning, when her parents came in her room, it was immaculate, and she would sit on the bed and would say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? Her words broke her new parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. After she knew that, she was an inseparable part of the family story. Even correction and discipline did not cause her to question her family's love for her. She understood correction and discipline to be part of what it meant to be in the family, isn't that interesting? Correction and discipline were part of what it meant to be in the family. We are adopted as children of Almighty God. That's part of our salvation in Jesus. We have an inheritance in Jesus. We'll come back to that in a little bit. We are part of God's family by His grace, not based off of earning it. So we're continuing our series on Galatians. And Galatians continues to show that we are saved by grace and not by the law. Saved by grace and not by the law. My theme today is human law shows the promise to Abraham stands and is fulfilled in Jesus. Human law shows the promise to Abraham stands. This promise made to Abraham 430 years before the law... That promise to Abraham stands, and it is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul is going to make an illustration just based off of human law and based off of reason and logic. Let's read Galatians three fifteen to 18. If you're not there yet, turn there in your, in your iPhone or smartphone or your Bible or tablet, whatever you got with you as long as you go there, or in the Bible in the pew. Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. If you're not there, I encourage you to turn there. I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to read it twice. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, capitalized L, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise gonna read that passage one more time to let it soak in. Because the word of God is what matters most of all. So let's read it one more time to let it soak in. Brethren, he says brethren, notice that, we'll come back to that. I speak in terms of human relations. Paul's going to give just a natural humanity illustration here. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Once you have ratified a covenant... You don't add conditions to it. That covenant is set. Verse 16. Now the promise promises were spoken to Abraham. And to his seed. That's singular. He does not say into his seeds. As referring to many. But rather to one. And to your seed that is Christ. That is really awesome. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The law which is talking about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, it's capitalized. The law which came 430 years later, what that means is that law, the Mosaic law, came some 430 years after Abraham. After that initial promise that God gave to Abraham, there was 430 years before the Mosaic law. Verse 17 again. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's talk about this. The promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham stands. The promise to Abraham is not made void by the law, the Mosaic law. So the point here, the first point, the covenant doesn't change. The promise, we could call it, doesn't change. We see this in verse 15. Notice that Paul begins this verse with brethren. Notice that. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, he says. You know, he has not used this loving term of endearment since chapter 1, verse 11. In chapter 1, verse 11, he called them brethren. And that Greek word, actually, is a Greek word adorphoi or adelphoi right here. It could be translated brothers and sisters in this context. Brothers and sisters. I speak in terms of human relations. It's a loving term. One writes, we are struck by the fact that Paul addressed the Galatians here as brothers. A term of endearment. He had not used this term since chapter 1, verse 11. Although it would occur again seven other times in this letter. Get this, seven times after this, Paul will call them brethren. We'll see that, that 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 occur again in chapter 4 verse 12, chapter 4 verse 28, chapter 4 verse 31, chapter 5 verse 11, chapter 5 verse 13, chapter 6 verse 1, chapter 6 verse 18. He will repeatedly use that loving term of endearment. This person writes, although the Galatians were, although the Galatians were confused, foolish, remember he said you foolish Galatians, They were bewitched. Remember, he said, who has bewitched you? And although Paul felt betrayed, perplexed, and forlorn about them, still they were brothers. Still they were brothers. This term of relationship is especially appropriate at the beginning of a passage. They will seek to answer the questions, what makes a family a family? Who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the heirs of the promise? And thus entitled to call one another brothers and sisters. What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ? What makes us the true children of Abraham? What makes us grafted in? What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ? And by the way, by way of a little indirect application there, even though Paul was offended by them, by them even though these Judaizers, these Jewish people who thought they needed to keep the whole law messed up the foundation which Paul had when he planted that church, he still loved them. He still supported them. He still uh, cared about them. He still called them brethren, which is an application for us. You know, Christians never disagree on anything, do we? Not anything of significance, right? I mean, just, you know, football teams. No, we disagree a lot, and we have issues and problems because we're still fallen, and we're sometimes not walking by the Spirit. But we still need to call each other brothers and sisters, we still need to love each other. We still need to care about us, each other. You know, fellowship is the Big Mac sauce of the church. <laughs> fellowship is the secret sauce of Christianity. Bearing one another's burdens, lifting each other up. Big Mac sauce is really good. If you haven't had it, you need to get, get to McDonald's, you know. You can get it on, a, on a, anything else. It doesn't have to be on a Big Mac. Anyways, fellowship is the secret sauce of the church, and we still need to care and love and support. Because what binds us together being Jesus is stronger than the devil trying to drive us apart. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It's a great love passage. It wasn't written for marriages. It was written for a church that was divided over different things. Okay, now back to the direct applications here. God set a covenant with Abram and Paul is about to show that that covenant does not change. That covenant does not change. That covenant with Abram came 430 years before the Mosaic Law. So point two, the covenant was to Abram's seed, which is Christ. The covenant with Abraham was to Abram's seed, which was Christ. In verse 16, Paul shares that this covenant was spoken to Abram's seed. Paul shares that this was Abram's seed In the singular, the the singular, singular, and that would be Christ. The verse says this. Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say into his seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The covenant, that's really awesome. The promise that God made with Abraham way before the law was fulfilled in Jesus. The ESV study Bible gives some insight that Paul was likely referring back to Genesis chapter 13 verse 15 and Genesis chapter 17 verse 8 and the promises that God made to Abraham. Paul knows that the Hebrew word translated seed could be translated as a um, collective singular and which has a plural sense, or as an actual singular meaning. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, Paul did use that word, having a plural sense. But right here, Paul translates that, recognizing it's singular. The promise was made to Abram, and to Abram's seed, which was Christ. The whole Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And God is faithful to the promise, which is fulfilled in Christ. So point three. Now, the law came later, but does not change the promise. Okay? The covenant doesn't change. The covenant was to Abraham's seed, which is Christ. The law came later, but it does not change the promises which were made to Abraham. Verse 17 expands on this. Paul says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The Hebrew people were thinking they had to follow the law religiously, follow the law completely, or they're not not saved. It was Jesus plus the law. And what Paul is is, is emphasizing is the law came later, but the promise is that Abram was saved. And Abram was saved by believing in God's promise. Abram was saved by his faith. Abram was saved by his faith. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 shares, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And that's, what, that's, that's what, um, that, what Paul is referring to. They were in Egypt some 430 years, which likely actually started counting with the promises to Abraham. You can read more about that later if you want. I'm not going to share it today. But <clears throat> the point is clear. Even though the law came later, the Mosaic law, it does not change the promises made to Abraham. Remember, in context, Paul has been talking about salvation by grace through faith. Look back at verse 14. If you're looking at your Bibles, look back at verse 14. It says, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through... Say that word. Through faith or through Jesus, faith in Jesus. We receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, not by keeping the whole law, though we should try to keep the law, especially the moral law, but through faith in Jesus. Actually, if we go back to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 6, it quotes Genesis fifteen six. If you look up at verse 6, it says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Or some translations say credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous, justified in God's sight by his faith, by believing. That was long before the law. God is faithful to his promise. His promise is that we are saved by grace through faith as it was with Abraham. Martin Luther, the church reformer, in his commentary, he wrote on this text. And he drew the individual believer into the sequence of salvation history. The sequence of salvation history, which Paul had outlined and encouraged those who felt condemned by this accusation. This is what Luther wrote. When the law was bugging him and piling on him, this is what Luther wrote. He said, Lady Law, you're not coming on time. You are coming too late. Look back 430 years. If these were rolled back, you could come. But you're coming too late and tardily. For you have been preceded for 430 years by the promise to which I agree and in which I gently rest. Therefore, you have nothing to do with me. I do not hear you. Now I am living after Abraham, a believer. Or rather, I am living after the revelation of Christ, who has abrogated and abolished you. Thus, let Christ always be set forth to the heart as a kind of summary of all the arguments in support of faith. And against the righteousness of the flesh, the law works in merits. The law had a purpose, and we're going to come back to that next week. The law still has a purpose, and we're going to come back to that next week. But we cannot be saved by keeping the law. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone, by grace. The covenant is based on a promise. Notice this in verse 18. It says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The covenant is based on this promise to Abraham. Paul is making this, making this extremely logical argument right here. Now Paul brings up an inheritance. You ever think about that? We have an inheritance in Christ. By being children of God the Father, we have an inheritance with Christ. And that inheritance is based off of how we serve Christ in this life. God is preparing us to reign with him. Being sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords, we have an inheritance. Now, you think about inheritance. I read this. It says the promise of a future inheritance is one of the many promises God makes to us in the Bible. But the concept itself is difficult for us to comprehend. One way to think about it would be to turn to some familiar names across the pond, the Atlantic Ocean. When Princess Diana died in 1997, she left a sizable inheritance for her two sons, William and Harry, in the amount of $20.4 million. Just a little bit. With investments and interest, that amount grew during their teens and 20s to $31.4 million. But the provision was such that William and Harry we were only able to inherit this considerable estate after their 30th birthday. In June 2012, William turned 30 and inherited his portion. Harry, I believe, has since turned 30 as well. The estate is theirs. It has been promised to them. It is in their names and it has been set aside for them. In the same way, as followers of Jesus Christ, we also have an inheritance. It's set aside for us. It's waiting for us. And it's based on Jesus' promise. It is ours. It's in your name. It's set aside for you. At the right time, you too will receive an inheritance in heaven and in the new Jerusalem. Let's apply this passage. You know, we are saved by Jesus plus nothing. And so we must worship Jesus and not the law. And, you know, something I was convicted of just a little bit ago, actually, is a lot of times we recognize that in our head, but maybe not in our heart, or maybe in our heart, but not in our head, and we need to recognize it in both places, the heart and the head. You know, if we're saved by grace, Jesus plus nothing, do we give other people grace? Sometimes we might give, go one of two ways. Either we give ourselves way more grace than we give others, or we give others a lot of grace and we don't give ourselves grace. We don't forgive ourselves. If God is forgiven, who are we to say not forgive ourselves for past mistakes? God has forgiven you. Let it go. Give it to God. Live for Jesus. Forgive yourself. But God can also forgive others. And God does forgive others. And God wants to forgive others by grace. And we also need to give others grace. Jesus was and is, John 1.14 tells us, full of grace and truth. Most of us compromise one side or the other. But Jesus was both. We have to guard against not giving others grace. We have to give other people grace. We must recognize that God keeps his promises. His promise to Abram was kept in Christ. His promise to Abram was kept in Christ. Our thinking must be on Christ and not the law. On Christ and not the law. We must recognize that our inheritance is in Christ and not the law. If it is by the law, Christ died for nothing. We see that in verse 18. We saw, saw that in Galatians 2.21 as well. Our view of salvation must be focused on Christ and not the law. I'm not saying the law didn't have a purpose. The law had a purpose and has a purpose, but it's not to save. Actually, it's to point us to our need for a savior. Romans tells us that in Romans 3:20. We must not neglect the importance of the law either. That's my next point. But we must see it as a second step to the promise, a second step to the promise. One person writes the following: Like what was written, in other words, for Paul, the law was not merely a late addition in the history of salvation. Rather, it was a completely different kind of covenant than the one God had concluded with Abraham centuries before. Jehe Mendenhall has described the contrast that was at the heart of Paul's distinction between the two covenants. And Mendenhall wrote this, It's not often enough seen that no obligations are imposed upon Abraham. Do you realize that? When God gave Abraham this promise, no obligations were, were imposed upon him. Nothing. Circumcision is not originally an obligation, but it was a sign of the covenant. Like the rainbow in Genesis 9. The rainbow in Genesis 9 was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It serves to identify the recipients of the covenant as well as to give a concrete indication that a covenant exists. It is for the protection of the promise. Perhaps like the mark of Cain in Genesis 4. The covenant of Moses, on the other hand, is almost the exact opposite. The covenant of Moses is about rules. It imposes specific obligations on the tribes or clans without binding Yahweh to specific obligations. We are children of the promise. We are grafted in as descendants of Abraham. And we must trust in Jesus who keeps his promises. We must trust in Jesus. It's grace. Most of us have trouble with grace. I mean, if I were to pull out my car keys and I were to give one of you my car and you were to try to pay me, that would not be a gift. It would no longer be a gift. Well, it would if I give it to you. It wouldn't be if I accept the money. If I accept the money, then you earned it. You earned the car. How many of us go to work, work two weeks or a month, until you get your paycheck? And once you get your paycheck, you get on your knees in front of your boss and say, thank you so much. This is so nice of you. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. But you don't do that because you worked for that paycheck. You earned that paycheck. Or one would assume you did. You know, one would assume you worked for that paycheck. But if your boss brings you into his office and says, look, I know you've been coming, going, going with some hard times. I thought I'd give you this extra bonus. That's a gift. It's a bonus. You're, you're grateful. It's grace. We're saved by the grace of Christ, the complete and total grace of Of Christ. The question is, are you trusting in His grace? Because we can still get caught in these ruts where we're trusting not in the grace, but in our ability to do good. And we do that, we're no longer trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation. Are you trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection? There was a poem which I'm sure all of you have heard, it's called Invictus. Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate. How charged with the punishment, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's been used at many high school graduation ceremonies and many things, but it's incredibly unbiblical. It's not true. It's written in the 1850s by a humanist. Not true. God is in charge. We can trust him. And when we could not save ourselves, he stepped in and made a way for our Total, complete salvation. Are you trusting in him? Have you confessed that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Are you believing that Jesus is the only savior? Are you committing your life to him and following him? Christian life is not always easy, but you don't go through it alone. We're saved by grace. It's a totally free gift, but it will cost you your life. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, anyone can come after me, but he must deny himself, take up his cross every day and follow Jesus does call us to follow, being committed to him. Jesus even turned people away, the rich young ruler. Go and sell everything you own and follow me. He wouldn't do it. Jesus told people to go and count the cost. If you counted the cost, are you following Jesus? Are you committed to him? It is by grace, but it does call us to commit and follow and die daily to self and live for him. And let the Holy Spirit reign in your life. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us all following you. It is not always easy. Many times it's not easy. Sometimes every day it's not easy. But we know the Holy Spirit is with us and we do not live the Christian life alone. We live it by your grace. By your grace. By the Holy Spirit within us. Lord, we thank you because we know that you did create us for a relationship with you. But because our sins, they separate us from you. And we could not take care of our sins. We needed your help, Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again for our salvation. We believe that you are the Savior. We're trusting in you and committing to you. However, Lord, if there's some here that hear me say we believe and they don't believe, or maybe they're struggling with it, I pray for your awesome conviction, Holy Spirit, to turn their lives to you. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who would like to turn to you and give their life over to you as Lord and Savior, pray and ask that they would do that right now. And they would express that in a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again, and you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by you. I'm committing my life to you and trusting in you. Help and guide us all. Help and guide and support us all living for you. In Jesus' name I pray.